Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of MTG Rants. I'm Tanning Grace, and as always, I'm joined by Ross Merriam. Ross, you feeling all right? I know you were a little under the weather the last week, week and a half. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm finally sort of back to normal. Got kind of tricked, which was the most frustrating part. Where uh, you know my partner had uh, symptoms a week and a half ago or so, and we both tested that night, and she was positive. I was negative for COVID. And so I, I thought I was your partner, Ross. <laughs> I, you know, maybe I'm aiming for something polyamorous, Tannen. I was gonna say, I was gonna say, notice how he just giggled and it left it there for a while. <laughs> He's like, I thought you were just gonna ignore it, but anyway, continue. Uh, but uh, so I mean, you know, immediately we we separate, uh, and I spent a few days, in, you know, on the living room couch. And because last weekend I was supposed to be in, in Ohio doing commentary for Apex. And so I just tested every other day. And, the, you know, so I tested Tuesday again. And, and then that was negative still. And I started getting symptoms that during the week. But I once the second negative test comes, I'm thinking like, oh, I just like have a cold. You're lucky. Yeah, you got lucky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then Thursday night, Thursday, I take another test and that one's positive. And I'm like, I've spent like three days on the couch, but, you know, potentially now exposing the other people in the house because, because the first test came back positive. Um, and, uh, you know, then, uh, of course, just isolate over the over the weekend. But, um, you know, my symptoms were never too bad. Uh, it was just kind of frustrating to miss out on doing the commentary in Ohio, which I always love doing. Fortunately, I'll be there at the end of February after the Pro Tour because that's their season two invitational. So not Raft too long until I get to uh, go up there again. Yeah, Raft did a great job. Uh, yeah, standing in for you, by the way. I, I did tune in. I was. Uh, I, t- I told Elliot this that I thought uh, he did a great job. Uh, and it looked you know, great too, by the way. He was like dressed the nines, had the beard looking good. Like, yeah, I was. I was. I, I was crushing a little bit. Yeah. So uh, yeah, really, really good job on on very short notice there from him. So thankfully, he was able to step in. Um, but yeah, just didn't really do much for the last week trying to recover as best I could. And I, uh, I tested negative on Monday, I want to say. Uh, and at that point, I, you know, I started feeling fine over the weekend, but was still positive when I tested on Saturday. I jammed so many Q-tips up my nose in the last week. You have no <laughs> idea. And one of my, no- one of them got like really dry because I was blowing my nose a lot. And so there was a, there was blood a lot of the time for, for on my right nostril, but never my left, and that screws with the test. So I had to keep using more and more Q-tips, and I was trying to like get the blood out of my nose and stop the bleeding. It was it was it was a whole ordeal. Taking these COVID tests is very annoying. Uh, yeah, it's I'm right there with you. Like, <laughs> I wish there was an easier way to do it, but alas, there is not. Um, speaking of commentary, I can't give details just yet but i might have a big announcement a pipeline for that uh coming up for for stuff later this year and hopefully it's not a one and done when it comes to some of these as well so i'm excited to talk about some of that stuff what else has been going on with you anything else before we get into uh for everybody who's listening right now we're, we're gonna be doing a spoiler talk here uh this weekend i think you could have you know surmised that's just coming because i think almost all if not all of all is one all will be one all one, whatever the Phyrexian set. <laughs> Phyrexia all is one. Oh, no, it's all, all will, all be, will one. be one. Yeah, all will be one. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I've had a pretty slow January, you know, with mm. with COVID for the last week, and then I took it kind of slow the first week of January, uh, just because with with Emma here, 
So uh, now that I'm actually recovered, I can start looking into you know getting back into the the swing of things magic wise. Start looking Mm -hmm. forward to the pro tour. Um, You know, I've I've made some progress uh, fixing my my desktop. Apparently, the power supply also doesn't work. So I've ordered a new power supply that'll come in early next week. Yeah, Uh, hashtag soon. (laughs) It, It is. It has got shipped today. It's, it's imminent. It's it's finally imminent. Yeah, it got shipped uh, today. So uh, we'll see, we'll see how that goes. But yeah, now, right now I'm just getting back into the swing of things. I'm good. I'm glad. I'm glad and to hear that. And that means hear... we get to record a podcast for what feels like the first time in like a month. It, it does feel like that because we had the we had the break right. From yeah, like with the, the holiday break and then you know the COVID break and just yeah. Also, a lot of shit piling yeah, so it's been on. crazy. Like, did I tell you about what I did the other day? The crazy thing that I had to do the other day. So, uh, like, I'm I'm staying in Texas right now, and I'm dumb and let my license expire without realizing <laughs> it. Like, actually expire. And so I looked into it, and I was like, oh well, I'm in Texas, so like maybe I'll just like switch over to a Texas license. But to do that, when you have an expired license, you have to take the driving and the and the written test again. Which is like, you know, hey, it's not the end of the world, right? Like, I, I could do this. I could pass this stuff. So I look into that, and you need an appointment for it. Appointments yep. are like three months out for this kind of stuff. <laughs> so I was like, well, shit, right? So, like, I'm just sitting there trying to figure it out. I'm like, all right, whatever. So I'm in Austin, you know, like playing poker and stuff out here, hanging out. And I'm just like, all right, I guess I'll just drive home. So I just loaded up a few things in my car, drove home, got home at like 11 o'clock, you know, went to bed, got up, said hello to my mom, grabbed a few things, packed it in my car. Went to the went to the OMV there. It's like the Turbo DMV. I had made an appointment, got my license, went and got my inspection sticker, and drove home. <laughs> it's it's like it's six and a half seven hours without stops both ways. So I was just like, well, we're just gonna be in the car a lot <laughs> the next day. <laughs> Hope you had so, some nice podcast to listen to. Oh, I listened. I listened to a lot of random random stuff. Yeah. So. I also had some phone calls. I actually had some business to do, which was nice. So I got to, like, you know, make some phone calls and, and get rid of that and, like, talk some stuff over. Like, had some negotiations and stuff going on. So that was that was nice. But enough about me and my stupidity when it comes to a license. Let's talk about Phyrexia. All will be one. All right. So I'm going to skip Elish Norn. I believe we've already talked about this card quite a bit. I think we talked about it on one of the yeah. – uh, it was, like, one of the first ones. Um, the next one on the list that pops up that I want to talk about, and this is uh, – Sad for some people, if you're into the storyline, the Planeswalkers have been completed, a few of these. And this one, I'm a big fan of this one because I'm a big fan of the character, but Jace, the Perfected Mind, I love the... Can you see the cards in front of you? Like, you have the art? Yeah. I love the homage on the art here. It's like, it looks like Jace, the Mind Sculptor, like he's got the stuff between his hands, like the words, except it's Phyrexian, which is just really cool, like a cool little homage. But for everybody at home, it's two and a blue and a Phyrexia blue. It is completed, so that means you can pay a blue or two life. If you uh, if you do that, it comes in with two fewer loyalty. Yeah, if you so, pay so life how, instead of the mana. Yeah, that's how completed works on all of the Planeswalkers, by the way. All right, so it starts with five or three, depending if you pay. Th- if you pay four mana, it starts with five. If you pay three mana, it starts it starts for three. Uh, it's plus one is in, until your next turn. Up to one target creature gets minus three, minus zero. Minus two, target uh, player mills three cards. Then if your graveyard has 20 or more cards in it, then if a graveyard has 20 more cards in it, you draw three cards. Otherwise, you draw a card. And then minus X is target player mills three times X cards. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Ross. I'm actually pretty... I think this card's pretty good. Um, It looks pretty powerful to me. You know, as far as a three-mana Planeswalker goes, the bar is pretty low. 
and it's easy to look at this and say, oh, we're just like you know milling a bunch. Um, but the minus bill, the first minus ability does draw cards. Minus three, minus zero, like pretty much locks down a creature. Right, because like if you think of the the traditional play pattern with this, like you're gonna play it. If they have a creature, you're like, all right, plus on a creature. If they don't, you're like, okay, minus start to mill, start to mill you, draw a card, and now the planeswalker is still there. Like they still have to deal with this thing. So that I like that in planeswalkers, where like either one of the traditional play pattern cards is pretty good, and not to mention if you have other ways to mill with this card, it's pretty good, right? If you're milling yourself or milling your opponent, you can randomly draw the three and. There's also, like, late in the game, you can just play it and be like, all right, mill 15. You know, like, you just play it for the full five loyalty and try to get them there and finish the game off that way. Yeah, I don't really foresee doing that. I actually think you're going to mill yourself a lot, you know, and and uh, and try to, uh, you know, do something busted from there. I don't know how good, like, three mana mill nine is in Pioneer and, and the kind of things you can do with that um to be explosive but that's where i think the the potential lies in trying to generate value from self-milling uh because that way you can turn the minus two into you know potentially if, you, if you're aggressively self-milling with other things you're going to get to the ancestral you know part of the ability faster uh but you're also just going to potentially use it for drawing a card and mill three will you know draw a card some portion of the time when you mill over a card with flashback or escape or some creature you can access from the graveyard and a, you know, a whole host of different options there. So I'm not super high on the card, um, but I, I, th I would be interested in it being a sort of capstone card for self mill archetypes at the top of the curve. Yeah, I definitely could see that. Uh, speaking of completed planeswalkers next, we have Vraska betrayal sting for black and a black Phyrexian. Uh, comes with six loyalty, zero. You draw a card and you lose one life. Proliferate. Minus two. Target creature becomes a treasure artifact with tap, sacrifice this, add one man of any color, and it loses all of his other card types and abilities. So you just take something, make it into a treasure. Nothing yeah. else. And then minus nine. If target player has fewer than... Let me make sure I get this correct. This is a mouthful. All right. If target player has fewer than nine poison counters... They get a number of poison counters equal to the difference. So they just get nine poison counters. Yeah. Is what it is. Um, this is an interesting one. So it's five mana or six mana. Um, it has it has the traditional Planeswalker feel, right? It has the the plus or the whatever. You know, the the activate me, uh, some kind of some kind of loyalty. I'm sorry, some kind of uh some kind of card advantage. I apologize. And then loyalty because of proliferate. And then it's got a minus that protects itself in some way, right? Like it kills something. And then the the ultimate pseudo, it can pseudo in the game. And it probably should a lot of times because they're like, if you give them nine loyalty, nine uh, poison counters, you can probably proliferate in some way or you're going to be attacking them with something with toxic that turn, which we'll, we'll get into toxic later in the show. Yeah, uh, it's a question of how good that old mold, mold of Planeswalkers still is. You know, five mana... You get to plus to draw a card. You get to minus to kill something. It starts at four loyalty when you play with five, which is all reasonable. Uh, maybe even more importantly, it's this is a very splashable card. Like it, yes. Uh, to me, that it reads a lot like Obnixilus Reignited, which was a 100%. standard staple in its day, but that was five years ago at this point. But that was a three BB card. Four four B much easier to splash in other decks. 
Um, you know, how much value can you get out of proliferate? Proliferate has always been this really cool ability that I think players really like because it does flashy things, but it's never been a particularly strong effect. At least it's never, you know, it's never been put onto particularly strong cards where it makes a lot of splash in constructed. Um, and I worry, my big worry is the minus two when you're, you know, ostensibly killing your opponent's creatures, you're giving them this up this extra mana. Uh, which is probably going to allow them to double spell in the mid game. That ends up being really big. It also is going to make it easier for them to answer the Vraska by you know getting ahead on the battlefield uh, and using that mana to maybe remove blockers and, and get in cleanly with their own creatures. So I'm once again skeptical, um, but it does it does fit the mold of cards that have seen play before. So I wouldn't be that surprised, but I do think that it's not the same slam dunk that cards like this were usually five years ago. Another planeswalker to be completed here. And this one, I've seen varying uh, opinions of it all the way from unplayable to this will be banned in standard. And this is Nissa ascended. Uh, is it amethyst? What is that? I can't see the word. It's a small animist animist. I'm clicking on it, making it bigger. Okay. Sounded dirty. Anyway, uh, three green, green, Phyrexian green, Phyrexian green. So seven or five or six, however however you want to look at this. Well, seven, five, or three, because each time you pay two life, you lose two loyalty. Sure, sure. I meant for the casting cost, but sure. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, it, it starts with seven, and then you lose two for each two, like, like Ross said. It has a plus one. Create an XX green Phyrexian horror creature token, or X is the uh, the loyalty of Nyssa. Minus one, destroy target artifact or enchantment. Minus seven, until end of turn, creatures you control get plus one, plus one for each forest you control and gain trample. So it's got like overrun, make a huge thing, or naturalize. There's a lot to like on this card. I mean, these I, are I some agree. pretty, pretty good abilities. Like, now, important to note that XX means that it locks in, mm. you know, whatever the loyalty is as the right. ability resolves. Though it's time the, stamped yeah. because the plus uh, yeah doesn't change with Nissa's loyalty that would be star star, and the plus one is part is the activation cost. So if you cast this for five mana and have it on three loyalty and you plus one, you'll get a four four, and it'll stay a four four no matter what happens to Nissa. And then obviously like it, it keeps scaling from there. You make a four four, a five five, a six six, uh, and keep going. So I mean five mana for a four four. Plus, you still have this Planeswalker around, and if it lives, it keeps scaling. Obviously, you know, I think we've seen over the last few years, incidental disenchant effects have become a lot more valuable. They're really good, yeah. Because there's plenty of powerful artifacts and enchantments around. Uh, and then the, that minus seven is going to end a lot of games, especially because as the game goes long, you can just cast this card for seven mana if you have it and immediately get that overrun effect. So that aspect of it where it is a great mana sink and you get to a point where you no longer have to wait at, at all for the ultimate is really interesting and not something we see very often on planeswalkers. So the, of the planeswalkers, this is the one I'm highest on. Um, Same. I, I'm certainly not going to say it'll be banned in standard. That seems ridiculous to me, but I do think this card will be a, a significant player in standard uh, and hopefully will, you know, help out green decks because it, as far as I'm aware, green has been pretty bad in standard <laughs> at this point so uh might need some help from a card that's this powerful yeah this card's gonna end a lot of games right if yeah. green's playable and good this card is going to uh just you're gonna see it cast for like seven mana a decent bit and just end the game immediately yeah 
Let's and, stick with and those. This card's like, it's hard to attack, too. It's got a good yeah, amount of loyalty. Right? You right. know, it keeps plussing up to make blockers. The, the blockers keep getting bigger. They already start at a reasonable rate. Like 4-4 four, four at 5 mana is not that far behind the curve for constructed, and you keep scaling up. So, And obviously, like you know, you can pay it, pay 6 mana for it if you want to, and, and that's what you have. And now you immediately make a 6-6. Six, six. And mm-hmm. uh, So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in for this card. I, I think buying. it's going to be a problem. Yeah, you're buying this one. All right. Speaking of Mythics, let's stay with the Mythics. Uh, this one is... The big Phyrexian dragon in this set. It's three red, red, red for a 4-4. Four, four. But it says this spell costs three less to cast if you have nine or more cards in your graveyard. So that's something that piques my interest right away, right? Um, flying. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, exile three cards at random from your graveyard. Choose a non-creature, non-land card from among them and copy it. You may cast that copy without paying its mana cost. This is a very flashy card, Ross. It's one of those ones that, like, I feel like you have to run through hoops to make it good, though. Yeah, the big problem is that you have you have very little control over, right. you know, what what you're getting out of the trigger. And in order to play this card effectively, you need to fill your graveyard really quickly. And that means you can't really care about what you're filling your graveyard with. Yeah, it's not like which, you could build a deck that is very careful to only put powerful spells in the graveyard because that's going to take more time. And it makes the card's ability worse, right? Yeah. Because you're diminishing your return. I got, you know, in a typical sort of is it deck, like, you know, this obviously is trying to slot into, you know, when you have nine cards in your graveyard, you know, maybe I, in standard, there's obviously fewer lands, but. Um, you know, in a format like modern where you have fetch lands, like that nine card graveyard is going to have a creature or two. It's going to have probably at least three lands in it. And, you know, maybe some not so impactful spells like a thought scour or consider something, of you know, a cantrip of that elk, you know, not to mention if you have counter spells in your deck that aren't going to be good hits with it. So, yeah, I don't think this card compares uh, that favorably to something like um, a Bedlam Reveler. Uh, just because Bedlam Reveler, like, you know what you're getting out of that trigger when it happens. And I, I really value that in a lot of cards. Like, in order to play the game of Magic, you have to be able to, you know, ex- you know, know what you're getting out of the cards that you're playing to or the cards that you're drawing towards. You know, when you play Capricious Hellraiser, it's like, I really need to flashback this removal spell for whatever threat they have. But if there's one copy in your nine-card graveyard, you're one in three to hit it. And uh, that, that to me is just too too much variance. And you know, sometimes cards can have some amount of overt variance and still be good. Collected Company is a really you know easy example. Uh, but when you do the math, I think that the numbers come out much more favorably towards something like Collected Company than they do with Agreed. Hellraiser, where you're exiling yeah. three out of at least nine. Definitely agree there. Um, I wouldn't be surprised this showed up somewhere, but it's gonna just, like it's gonna need the perfect deck to slot into. Yeah. Um, so next up, we have an oldie but a goodie. Phyrexian Obliterator is back. Uh, did we talk about this one? I think on a prior episode. Uh, I think I we like mentioned we, it. But... I think we did. So like, we, let's let's move on because there's another big creature that I want to talk about. Uh, Tyranex Rex. <laughs> this is a sweet one. This is four green, green, green for an eight eight. It's a Phyrexian dinosaur. Uh, it can't be countered. It's got Trample, Haste, and Ward four. And then we're not done, Ross. There's more. There's Toxic 4. Now, for everybody at home, if you haven't seen Toxic yet, 
Play, uh, players dealt combat damage by a creature also get poison counters equal to the number of toxic it has. So if you attack with this 8-8 and they say no blocks, they take 8 damage, and since it has toxic 4, they take they get 4 poison counters. It doesn't matter how much damage they take, though. If they block with a 7-7 and 1 gets through, then 4 poison counters happen as well. So if they take damage at all from this creature, they're going to get it. All right. 7 mana, it's a lot. But... This compares pretty favorably with a lot of the stuff that were like this in the past, like, say, Carnage Tyrant and stuff. So if the format gets very mid-rangey, th this is a card that can definitely do some stuff. Because the fact that it has Trample and Haste, I think, really, really sets it apart. Because Ward 4 means you're going to be able to play it on turns where, like, they're probably not going to be able to interact with it, even at end speed. You're going to get your attack in, and then they're going to spend their entire turn doing something about it. Or they're just going to die. I, I think this card is going to be good and it's going to kill people if green's playable. Yeah, we've seen cards like this before. They usually have a pretty well-defined role. I always think of, of like Gaia's Revenge. Sure. Um, what was the other one? Mist Cutter Hydra, I think was like one very much like Yeah, Mist Cutter Hydra being more flexible uh, and pro-blue when mono-blue was such right. a big deck kind yeah. of gave it a little bit more... Uh, cachet in that metagame but this is like that that big threat that is very good against control decks you know obviously it matches up so well against counter spells and spot removal they kind of need a sweeper it's a haste creature so you're getting damage in regardless and then you know it if you look at the you know the car the set the there's sort of this magic number with toxic where once you get them to three then a lot of the cards that in your deck get buffed. I haven't really seen a ton that look great for constructed play, so that might be more of a limited thing for this set. Where they're, you know, I, I know you remember Scars and Mirrored Limited, but uh, for maybe our younger <laughs> listeners who didn't didn't draft that set, which is now what like twelve years old. Don't uh, tell me. Don't do, please. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, one one of the main issues with Scars of Limited. Scars and Mirrored Limited, which which I think was a good limited set overall, but its biggest issue was the bifurcation between Infected X and not Infected X, where it was really hard to play the Golgari colors, the main Infect colors, with the other colors. So you were mainly drafting either Jeskai, you know, or some subset of Jeskai, or you were an, a very linear Infect deck, and there was really only one Golgari deck ever to draft. And that's because you know you didn't want to split your damage because then you often got to the point where your opponent was at you know uh, six poison and five life and you're like well I've dealt twenty one but somehow my opponent isn't dead yet um, and this is I think this is their way to try to solve that issue by you know saying you know what you're, you're going to need a little bit of of toxic a little bit of poison and damage on your opponent. Because that's gonna, you know, make a, a lot of your cards a lot better. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether it's pumping your creatures or buffing your spells or, or what have you. So this card kind of immediately getting you into that range with Toxic Four um, is is kind of cool. I just think it's for constructed. It, this is a very much a metagame call. Like if you're casting this card into a bunch of flooded battlefields, they're just going to make double and triple blocks, and you're going to trade down. Even if you're getting two cards out of it, it's probably not going to be that good for a seven mana card. But like your big finisher, yeah, yeah. But if you're playing against more reactive strategies, then this card is a fucking house. So yeah, very much a metagame call. Now, there are a couple cycles in this set, uh, one of which we're starting to get uh, all of the different color ones now. There, There's like a cycle of, quote-unquote, gods in this set, one for each color. 
they're like Phyrexia horrors, but like they each can become indestructible. We're gonna go through these pretty quickly. So like the white one is uh, Mondrock Glory Dominus. So it's yeah. two white white for a four four legendary creature Phyrexian horror. If one or more tokens would be created under your control, twice that many of those tokens are created instead. So like already this is a card that's like gonna see play across like you know other for- uh, standard adjacent yeah. formats. And, yep. and we saw Anointed Procession, Hidden Stockpile right. Deck, see play in, in sure. Standard before. And then this could be pretty good in stuff like Commander as well. And then you could pay one white-white. These are Phyrexia Whites. So one Phyrexia White, Phyrexia White. Sacrifice two other artifacts and or creatures. Put an indestructible counter on uh, this this card. So you could just make it a god. you know. But you have to like pay a cost. But let's be real. Sometimes this isn't actually a cost. Sometimes this is something that you have carefully curated to be fine or good for you. There's a, there's a, another kind of uh, Blood Artist-type card in this set, so if you have something like a Black-White Sacrifice deck, this could be a really, really good way to finish that, because you also might be sacrificing something that creates tokens when it dies. So yeah, now you're there's a lot those tokens. To, yeah, there's a lot to like about this card, and to me, this card feels kind of like a 5-drop, in the fact that you're going to want to probably make it indestructible as quickly as possible in a lot of your games. Yeah, definitely a very powerful effect for sort of token-centric sacrifice decks. Um, you know, one thing that gives me pause is, is just the cost. Generally, sacrifice decks want to be very low curve because you've got a lot of different pieces that you want to assemble on the battlefield as quickly as possible. You need your sacrifice outlets. You need, you know, your sacrifice fodder. You need your sacrifice payoffs. Uh, and getting those all on the battlefield in a timely manner means that, you, you know, you generally these decks have seen a curve that stops at two and three. Uh, so four, and you know, uh, I agree with you. This is a little bit more of a five drop, so you can protect it. Uh, it is definitely high on the curve, but I agree that there's a lot to like here. It's a very powerful effect for those kinds of decks. Uh, big question is whether there's enough around it to make a deck like that work. I think you know, with the way the standard environment has been recently, where it's very grindy, those kind of decks could be quite good. We've seen Racto sacrifice around with, with um, Oni Cult Anvil and things like that. So, do we have good enough mana to be able to play full on Mardu so that this card can slot into those archetypes, or do you have to go fully away from Oni Cult Anvil? And then it's a question: Is Mondrak compete you know better than Anvil, and now they're competing against each other? Uh, speaking, yeah, I was going to say that that's the question, right? Yeah. Spe- speaking of the mana, we'll get to that soon. It, there, there's something to like about the mana in this set. Actually, yeah. I'm, I know you and I are both very happy about in this Finally. set. Finally. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, the Green God is going to be five green green for Legendary Creature Phyrexian Horror. Uh, Z- Zopendrel, I guess. It's got reach and it's a four six. This is at the start of each combat, double the power times each creature you control until end of turn. And then it's got, you know, the green Phyrexian, green Phyrexian, uh, sacrifice two creatures, put an indestructible counter on it. This is one of the ones that I think you can just pay at seven mana if you're ever going to be doing something like this. Um, it's going to kill your opponent when you play this. This is this feels kind of like, uh, what's the name of the Crater Huff? Like, you just want to put it to play, everything's gigantic, attack you, and like, who cares if this survives? You know, as long as the trigger happens they're they're dead or they're gonna die yeah uh, seven's a lot though it does the crater of like works with a bunch of small creatures whereas this card doesn't work as well right because it's all doubling the, their power and toughness so mm. i agree that it's similar to crater of it just seems worse um and as a card that you're gonna try to hard cast it in you know if you're gonna go that route it's awkward to me because I want my seven drops to be able to catch me up from behind. 
that's something I look out of, you know, I I value a lot more out of expensive cards because if you're going to put expensive cards in your deck, then you're more likely to fall behind. Uh, and this is not really a seven drop that does that. This is a seven drop that very decidedly like pushes an advantage that you already have. And like, how often do you need to resolve a seven drop if you're already ahead? So I'm not a big fan, but yeah, it could end up being like a, a cool cube card or something as like a natural order yeah. target. So, like, the, the problem with me is that it's in the same set as this Nissa Planeswalker, and Nissa just does everything better for the same amount of mana or cheaper. So, like, why? Yes. Like, you know what I mean? Like, where, where, am, I playing, where <laughs> yeah. am I playing this card when I would not be playing Nissa ahead of time? All right. So, the red one is two red red for a 5-4. Uh, if a source you control would deal non-combat damage to an opponent or a permanent an opponent controls, it deals double that damage to that player or permanent instead. Uh, it's one red red, you know, with Phyrexian mana. Discard two cards, put the counter on it. Um, it's kind of like Furnace of Wrath, but like the problem is, it's a five four for four. You're probably not doing, you know what I mean? Like you're gonna need to play this and do. You're gonna, this seems like a lot of setup for me. Like I'm not this one, uh, not doing it for me. This is also clearly the like the hardest one to uh, activate to get the counter. Sure, like, sacrificing creatures, you can you know mitigate that with deck construction. But fully discarding two cards, like, are you just really flooded? Are you somehow getting value out of the discarding of the cards? That's just harder to do. So this one, I, I have to judge more just off of the, you know, raw stats. I'm casting it on four, hoping it lives. So, you know, is it, does it compare favorably to Torbran? Uh, I mean, it seems fine, but Torbran was always like a kind of mad card in those decks, to be honest. Like, it, it's a very flashy card when it works, but... You know, it only works when your opponent is sitting there and doesn't have an answer to your four drop. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right. So the black one, this one's a weird one. Uh, it's five mana for an eight three. If a creature dying causes a triggered ability of a permanent you control to trigger, it triggers an additional time. And then it's, you know, black, black. Uh, exile three creature cards from a graveyard. Sorry, from your graveyard. Put an instructable counter on it. Um, y y Yeah, I think that's about it for me. That's, that's about all I'm going to say. I, this one I kind of like, you know, okay. the the fact that it doesn't cost non-Frexian mana to activate the activation, if you can set it up, doesn't really cost you any any value, anything on the battlefield, um, and these sacrifice decks tend to have a lot of, you know, just inc uh, incidental creatures put into their graveyard over the course of the game. This is a cool curve topper to me, because it applies a lot of pressure. <laughs> just five mana, eight, three, indestructible, let's go. Um, and then, uh, you know, obviously, like, uh, it, it's a creature going to the graveyard, so it doesn't double the triggers of a card like Mayhem Devil, but it will on certain Blood Artist effects. I know that, you know, we'll come to the, the two-drop in this set that it certainly works really well with. So uh, I could see this also, you know, much like the, the white one being a curve topper in Sacrifice decks uh, and being very good in that role. Sure. All right. Uh, do we have the blue one? I'm like looking for the blue one. I'm not sure I see it. Um, maybe not. I, I, maybe we don't have the blue one yet. Doesn't seem a, like it. That's a possibility. All right. Uh, there's another set of, uh, like a you know all the cards in a different color. The what were they called? Zeniths last time. I think is what they were yeah, called. Yeah, there were zeniths in in Mirror of Twilights. Yeah. So let's go ahead and go through those. This one, uh, this one's a sorcery. The White Sun's Twilight. X white white. You gain X life. Create X one one. Uh, colorless Phyrexian might artifact creature tokens. God, with toxic one, and this creature can't block. 
If X is five or more, destroy all of the creatures. So this is a lot like Martial Coup. Except it kills your opponents on multiple axes, but you can't block, and you gain X life. Like, this card does a lot, Ross. Like, a lot. It does a lot, but when comparing it to a card like Martial Coup, which was a bit player during its time in Standard, yeah, the fact that the tokens that you get can't block is a big deal. It's, because it's a big deal. Yeah. This is a card that goes into defensive decks that are playing from behind. That's why you want that sweeper effect. And when you need to cast it for four, five, or six mana, you can't have X equals five, you're probably casting it so that you can do some blocking. And mm -hmm. so the fact that the mites don't block is kind of a a deal breaker yeah. for me. All right, I like the blue one myself. It looks like it's going to be yeah. a really good uh, limited card as well. This one's X blue blue sorcery. Gain control of target creature of mana cost, I'm sorry, mana value, X or less. If X is five or more, create a copy, a token uh, that's a copy of that creature. That's pretty good. Other than the fact that, like, one of the best creatures... You can't take legendary stuff. Like, you can take it, but you can't copy it. You know, like, obviously yeah. the copy goes away. Like, whatever. You know, you can't get two shieldreds or whatever. But this card seems great. Especially when you're going to be taking, like, anything that has value of any kind. Or, like, does anything really good if it has haste or whatever. This can be a game-changing card. Yeah, we've already seen Entrancing Melody. Uh, this card is just, you know, strictly better, essentially... And uh, the fact that you can pay more than the mana value of the creature you're targeting means, you, you know, if you have the mana to cast it for X equals five, you're all, you'll always be able to do so. Yep. You're not restricted in needing a five mana creature to target. So, you know, you, you can take that blade splicer and, and get another token or whatever. You can always just That's target not a great... Your own, yeah, you can always target your own thing, too, if you just want to make a copy of it, like in a pinch. Yeah. If you're just like, yeah, I've got the best thing in play, I'm just going to copy it for seven mana or whatever. Yeah. Like, that's not the end of the world. You know, all, you can also do true. So, yeah. yeah, Entrancing Melody with Upside, definitely a, a card yeah. that should see some play. Speaking of Shieldred, I kind of like the black one when paired with Shieldred as well. So the black one is X and black. It's an instant rust. It's a up to one target. This is up to, so you can you, you don't have to have a target for the first part. Up to one target creature gets minus X, minus X until the turn. If X is five or more, return a creature card of mana value X or less from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped. Now, it does come into play tapped, so you can't, like, completely blow somebody out in combat. Generally, in, in almost every form of magic that we've had competitively, like, X plus one to, to deal with a creature hasn't always been great because then you're paying up on mana, right? Yeah. You're paying up on rate. This, however... <laughs> If, it, if it's done for five or more, is also going to get you something like Sheholdred back, Phyrexian Obliterator back, some kind of big-ass creature that's good. Uh, this one might be good enough. Yeah, I, I, I tend to I tend to like removal spells like this in small numbers in my decks. Like like two, yeah. Yeah, yeah you don't want to you don't want this to be the main removal spell in your suite of, of answers because then your deck ends up being too clunky. But it's really nice to have access to this card because as games go along, you know, it becomes a a really big swing to be able to remove a creature from their side and return a creature from your side. You know, it's like catching a ball in dodgeball. You know, they're, they're out when sure. your players comes back in. It's a two-player swing. Yeah, I can see this card, like, let's say standard's, like, really mid-rangey. This card could absolutely swing massively. Yeah, in some and, of and standard games. has been mid-rangey. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, yep. I'm, I I like it. I expected to see some play. Yeah, speaking of expecting to see some play, the green one has had some press buying it, too. This one's a sorcery, X and a green. Reveal the top X plus one cards from your library. Choose a creature card and or a land card from among them. 
Put those cards into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. If X is five or more, instead put the chosen cards onto the battlefield or into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in any random order. Uh, there's a lot to like in this card, Ross. Uh, you know, there's tons of decks that have effects like this that you could already see possibly thinking about it. You know, you think of Monogreen Devotion in Pioneer. You think of Amulet in Modern. You think of a lot of decks in Commander and stuff. If you, if you can generate mana a lot quickly and make this happen for, you know, six, seven, eight mana, you can do some crazy stuff here. Uh, I really think about it in Mono Green where, like, you're, like, active. It's kind of like Storm the Festival without flashback. You know, you're, like, activate this thing, get a Nykthos, get something, do it again. But, like, not having flashback, I think, is a big problem for it taking that slot in uh, Mono Green. Yeah, and uh, obviously this is a very powerful card when you're casting it for X equals five or more. All of the Twilights, you know, meet that criterion. But the problem for me is this one, I think, like the white Twilight isn't particularly good if you're casting it for X is less than five. You know, if, if you think of it, or if you think of it for, say, X equals two or X equals three, so two and a green, you're hoping you hit creature and land, and now you've just divinated. But you don't do that all the time. Sometimes it's two creatures, and now it's kind of a crappy anticipate. Sometimes it's two lands, and it's an even crappier anticipate. You know, if your deck has, you know, any number of non-creatures and lands, then there's a chance that you brick. Once you start casting it for X equals three, like, even when you get slightly better than Divination as a four-mana sorcery, that's not particularly good. So, uh, I look at, I always look at these cards and say, I know it's going to be good when I cast it for big mana, but how good is it when I cast it for small mana? And like Black Sun's Twilight and the Blue Sun's Twilight have, you know, real applications, even if they're slightly inefficient removal spells. They're still removal spells that will trade one for one relatively often. Um, and like, and not be too inefficient about it. Green Sun's Twilight, I think, is too inefficient at low X values, uh, for me to like. Okay, I could definitely see that. And let's get the last one. It's the red one. It's X, red, red. Destroy up to X target artifacts. If X is five or more for each artifact destroyed this way, create a token that's a copy of it. Those tokens gain haste. X saw them at the beginning of the end step. This is obviously the most restrictive one. Looks like the worst one on paper. If this is good, it's going to do something utterly busted and kill your opponent. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I think. <laughs> you know, again, I think you can cast this card for three and four mana, X equals one or two, and have it be good. It's just only going to be good in certain matchups where you got a lot of artifacts to target. So uh, to me, it reads like a good sideboard card and an especially good sideboard card because you know what we like out of our sideboard cards is cards that can really swing a game, can swing a matchup, that high ceiling. Uh, and Red Sun's Twilight certainly delivers that. You also think of cyborg games as going longer, being a little bit grindier because players have, you know, their reactive cards more tailored to the matchup. And this is a card that gets better in longer games because of the, you know, scaling nature of the X mana cost. So, yeah, I think it just reads like a great sideboard card to me. Absolutely. Let's talk about some of these cards that have caused some hype on, you know, Twitter and the social media and stuff like that because... I want to try to get through as much of this uh, as I can on this episode, and then maybe we'll try to finish it up on the next one, which I'll try to get out earlier next week. We're recording this on a Friday, so you'll probably be hearing this on something like a Monday or Tuesday, and we'll try to have one recorded and ready to go as soon as possible then as well. Uh, this is a card that a lot of people have been super high on, and I can see why. This is a green one drop. Uh, venerated, what is it, Rot Priest? Yeah, Venerated Rot Priest. One green. It's a 1-2 Phyrexian Druid. It's got Toxic 1. 
So players dealt combat damage by this, also get a poison counter. Whenever a creature you control becomes a target of a spell, target opponent gets a poison counter. I misread this the first time. It's whenever it becomes a target of a spell from anyone, Ross. Yeah. It doesn't have to be an opponent. It could be you. You could play a pump spell on it. Whatever you want, they're going to get a poison counter. This card's pretty good. And the fact that it's a 1-2 means that it's way more playable in some of the other formats. Like, if you wanted to bring, um, try to make Infect playable again in, say, like, Modern, you need it to be able to kill, I mean, survive a Ren and Six. And so this is one of the ones that can do that, because that's one of the big problems that deck has had. Yeah, uh, very much agree. The second toughness is big. As far as, you know, the the toxic creatures that we've seen, this, I think, is the best that we've seen thus far. I'm still skeptical of there being, you know, a poison deck. Um, I'm not sure if I've seen all of the pieces to make it work, uh, especially because the, the recipe to make it work is not obvious. You know, this isn't just infect creatures and pump spells. Toxic doesn't work that way. Uh, but the the cool thing is like this works with protection spells. It works, you know, with um uh like reckless rage. Uh because you know, veteran rock priest is whenever any creature, right, gets targeted. So you don't have to target the rock priest itself if you have other things to target. Yeah, it's a creature you control. Yeah. Yeah. Um and, and things like that. So you can build with other things in mind uh and just get your value out of the trigger there. And then the the other thing I like is that the you know when you draw a rot priest in, in multiples, you'll get multiple triggers off of each target, and so you can really start building up those uh, those poison counters relatively quickly. So, yeah, to me, this is definitely the mo- far and away the most intriguing toxic creature that they've previewed thus far, and uh, I'll be interested to see if, if people can make it work. I don't know if going the full-on, like, groundswell route, I don't know, have you seen people talking about this, where you're basically a storm deck? Ground spell no. is, a, is a one mana sorcery that says right. target creature without flying can't block this turn and has storm. Oh, you just keep going. Yeah, you just you storm and you you copy that you know, make a million copies, target the rot priest every time or target something you know yeah. a creature you control and you just give them a bunch of bunch of poison counters and you know That's is is that cool. is that better than just killing people with grape shot? I Debatable. I don't think so. But Debatable. It's cool. M- maybe <laughs> it's super cool, Ross. That's got to be worth something. It's definitely cool. <laughs> it's not usually worth something to use, but it is to me. All right, another one that, again, this is one of those cards that I've seen the full spectrum of, of views, especially when it got spoiled. You know, you saw them a lot on Twitter, back-to-back. You should take some pictures. And I love the name of this card as an homage to, like, its original. Minor Misstep, Ross. It's one blue instant. Counter target spell if mana value one or less. Um, It's format dependent. It's, you know, what people are playing dependent. I, I'm not sure if I see people playing this over, like, say, Flusterstorm or Spell Pierce in some spots, but it's an interesting card for sure. I would have to, like, really sit down and think about this. Yeah, I, I think it's good enough to be in the discussion, but I think most of the time you're going to want a more flexible card like Spell Pierce or Flusterstorm. Um, but there could be specific metagames where you need to counter certain artifacts that are cheap or certain creatures. Um, I guess you really need to say, uh, I guess art- artifacts works for Flusterstorm or creatures for Spell Pierce. Um, that it, minor misstep might, you know, have the right set of, of hits and misses. Uh, as opposed to Pierce or Flusterstorm, but in general, I, I don't see this card displacing those cards, and I don't see decks wanting to run so many conditional one-mana counters that they start playing both. So 
right now I would say somewhat overhyped, um, especially because unlike Pierce and Flusterstorm, this card is never going to trade up on mana. You know, you're never going to be able to cast this card and counter a two or three mana spell because of the text box of the card. <laughs> and uh, so th- that greatly, like, just that severe limitation on the card's upside means that it really has to be the exact right tool for the job. So it's going to be a very specific metagame call. And uh, I'm not really sure, like, you know, what that metagame looks like, to be honest. Sure. Uh, another card that we're talking about, just for a second, we can get through this one pretty quick, but I do think it'll be a player in standard, especially if mid-range is a thing, and black is as good as it looks like. It's going to be Phyrexian Arena is in this set, and for some of you who might not, you know, me, you might be new to the game, this is a reprint. It's one black, black enchantment at the beginning of your upkeep, you draw a card and lose a life. Uh, if you're playing a longer game, this card will win you the game, if it's season play. You're going to draw an extra card every turn, and you will find a way to win. Uh, you know, I don't know what else to really say, other than, like, it fits pretty well into a lot of these decks. Also, this was Sheholdred. Like, feels pretty good to me. You're like, draw a card, gain one. I'll just gain one. I'll lose one, I'll gain two. Yeah. Yeah, I, um... I'm a little interested in... In what it looks like today, in today's magic? Well, yeah, obviously it's going to be easier to answer. The the fact that it's kind of slow in the uptake makes it worse. So, it's definitely a worse card than it was in, you know, 1998. or, Or whenever Apocalypse was released. Uh, but... I'm kind of interested in what this card might do for a you know, mono black devotion strategy in Pioneer, right? Because I, for years, I've been tearing my hair out at people trying to you know port a deck that they liked in Standard into older formats. What? But they always try to build it like it's a Nykthos deck when the original you know Standard deck was not at all a Nykthos deck. That deck got called Mono Black Devotion, and it got kind of lumped in with Mono Blue and Mono Green, the other Devotion decks, but it was very different. Because when you're talking about a deck that wants to play with Nykthos and wants to play a lot of Devotion payoffs, you're talking about a deck that wants to play very resource-rich games, because it's getting incredible synergy out of having a lot of different permanents on the battlefield and increasing its Devotion count. Uh, the Mono Black Devo- you know, Devotion deck in Standard was a more reactive mid-range deck playing Thoughtseize and a lot of cheap removal and then Heroes Downfall and then some card advantage and some really efficient threats. And as it turned out, Grey Merchant of Asphodel didn't really need a lot of Devotion to still be a solid card and was generally the best 5-mana threat uh, until the you know people started potentially splashing other things. So it wasn't really a Devotion deck per se. It was just a monocolored mid-range deck. And, you know, I see so many people now trying to put, like, Liliana of the Veil in a deck with Grey Merchant of Asphodel, and those two cards don't really go together. Liliana is a very, you know, restrict the resources kind of card. Grey Merchant wants extra resources. Phyrexian Arena is a resource-rich card, and it's one that's somewhat difficult to answer as a permanent that provides two pips of devotion. So that, to me, could be kind of interesting. I'm not, you know, saying this deck's going to be great or anything, but... Uh, it would be something to try. Yeah, I forgot Liliana the Veil was in standard. By the way, it's like yeah, because you know, like it was like all hyped. I remember you and I talking. About, I was like, I, I'm not so sure. So like, we'll see. Uh, card sitting next to it on the on the on the preview thing is a card that I definitely liked. I was talking to some people about it. I don't know other people, but this is uh, I have no idea how to pronounce this name. It's Screlv Screlv's Hive. Sure. One the 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 white bitter blossom. So it's one in a white enchantment at the beginning of your upkeep. You lose one life, and you create a 1-1 colorless Phyrexian Might artifact creature token with Toxic 1, and this creature can't block. Also, it's Corrupted. So as long as you're... Which is an ability in the set. 
Uh, as long as your opponent has three or more poison counters, creatures you control have toxic. Creatures you control with toxic have lifelink. Obviously, this isn't Bitter Blossom, but here's the thing: this plus like curving into wedding announcement into like Wandering Emperor, you can do some stuff. And we've already seen like white enchantments be very good in this format. And when you start overloading them enchantments so they can't kill all of them. I mean, this card can get you a lot of value. Again, the card, the, the tokens can't block. And I think that's the biggest thing keeping it from being ridiculous because yeah. Bitter Blossom is great at just making the game go super long. It, that makes it to me a lot more Dreadhorde Invasion than yes. Yes. Bitter Blossom. But I do think it's better than Dreadhorde Invasion, a card that largely flopped because you're still, you still have that go wide effect. And then obviously, like, you know, the, the corrupted ability can be relevant. Um, there's also the, the added aspect that, that, uh, Todd Anderson brought up to me, this makes artifact creature tokens. Yep. So if you're a deck that cares about artifacts and maybe sacrificing artifacts, this could be a great enabler for those kinds of strategies. Um, so I think those things push it above Dreadhorde Invasion into a more interesting realm, but certainly not Bitter Blossom. And if I were trying to build with this card, I would be look trying very hard to take advantage of the fact that it generates artifacts on the battlefield and see what synergies that can lead to. That's a really good point. Speaking of artifacts, I saw some, some buzz on this one. Conduit of Worlds, two green-green for an artifact. It says you may play lands from your graveyard. You can tap it. Choose target non-land permanent card in your graveyard. If you haven't cast a spell this turn, you may cast that card. If you do, you can't cast additional spells a turn. Activate only the sorcery. How are you feeling about this one? This one's a little weird for me. I think it seems pretty good to me, especially if you can take advantage of the, of the lands in your graveyard. You know, obviously in formats with fetch lands and wasteland, like in cube or something like that, um, this is going to do cool stuff. But I think a lot of the time when you're a green deck, you're just going to be like recasting your big spells that you've ramped into. Um, if you have some way to, to replay lands from your graveyard or get lands in your graveyard and then replay them, this is a very powerful card to provide ramp decks of resilience. So maybe it's not a, a main deck card. Maybe it's more of a sideboard card uh, for heavy interaction strategies. So, uh, But I do think it is a powerful effect and a very unique effect that we really haven't seen in, in green before. Uh, I guess like you see it in like Moltrotha. Um but, the, you know, in, in mono green, I, I don't know exactly where to put it. I, I will say it's a card that, that but it, it intrigues me. Yeah, maybe you can ask your uh, parents about that at some point. They'll tell you where to put it. But anyway, uh, we can move <laughs> on to some of the uh, the multicolored stuff here. So I want to make sure that we get some of the, the higher impact cards in on this episode. Uh, Nahiri the Unforgiving is something that got a little bit of press quite a bit. So it's one red, white, and then red or white Phyrexia. So like a lot of, you know, color stuff here it's completed obviously uh it has five loyalty or three depending on how you cast it plus one until your next turn up to one target creature attacks a player each combat fable plus one discard a card then draw a card zero exile target creature or equipment card with mana value less than the hero's loyalty from your graveyard create a token that's a copy of it the token gains haste exile at the beginning of your next end step i've seen people talk about this in, like hammer and like all kinds of stuff um how are you feeling about this one? Um, I'm not big on it, but that said, um, I picked up on them trying to push equipment themes in Boros years ago. I, I mean, not to say that I was, you know, a genius in doing so. That it's been pretty obvious. Um, but I've been trying to figure out like where 
these sort of equipment theme decks could fit into a constructed format. I built a ton of them on Versus Live over the years, and none of them were good. So I'm just kind of off it at this point. So as soon as I see a Boros card and I read like an equipment theme on it, I just kind of tune the card out. So admittedly, I haven't really thought a lot about this card, but that's because I, I just I can't do it anymore with these equipment decks. Equipment is just not a very powerful card type, okay? They're clunky, they're slow, they have high diminishing returns. It's really hard to build a theme around them outside of nonsense formats like Commander. I agree. Um, speaking of one that I am actually excited about, I think it might be pretty good. Uh, Tyvar Jubilant Brawler, one black green for, you know, Planeswalker. This one's not completed. Um, so it's going to cost three. Comes to play with three counters on it. This one's got a static. Uh, you may activate abilities of creatures you control as though those creatures had haste. So that, that's like already pretty good. Plus one, untap up to one target creature. Minus two, mill three cards. You may return target. Uh, you may return a creature card of mana value two or less from the battlefield to, from the graveyard to the battlefield. I think there's a lot to like about this card, Ross. I, I think this one could possibly do a lot of things. I agree. This is one of my favorite cards in the set. Um, I think it's going to be one of the best cards in the set, too. Very yeah, possibly. That's, I'm always on the lookout for very unique abilities, and that static uh, is quite unique. So uh, I, I'm in on this card. I've already built some decks with it. Um, I I think this it could be particularly card, good yeah. it, with Elves and Pioneer. Um, you know, and the fact that it does significantly more than that static with generating mana with the plus one and then you know generating card advantage with the minus two uh, is a great duality. You have you know ways to push your synergies. You have ways to get extra mana, which you need early. And then once you have enough mana in the late game, you can buy back a key creatures like say Elvish Warmaster or you know uh, you know some other synergy piece that that you're playing with. I know in modern people are talking about this card with Devoted Druid. So you know you can just cast Tyvar. Now Devoted Druid effectively has haste, which is one of the big issues of that deck. It also returns Devoted Druid from the graveyard. Um, so if you play turn two Devoted Druid and they kill it, you can just go turn three Tyvar rebuy kill you. Uh, which is, is kind of cool. So maybe it reinvigorates uh, Devoted Druid decks in um, in modern. I'm a little skeptical there with the quality of removal that we have in the format these days. Um, I think that's just a, a lot to overcome, but um, definitely something worth trying. So uh, there's a lot of cool stuff that you can do with Tyvar, and I think it's going to... This is the kind of card that might not break out on like week one, but you got to give it a couple weeks and let people really fully Someone explore it, it out, yeah. because it, it's such a unique card. Speaking of unique cards, I want to talk about something on this card just because a word that pops up on it. This is a Traxa Grand Unifier. So it's three green, white, blue, black for a 7-7 legendary creature for Phyrexian Angel. Um, it has flying, vigilance, death stuff, and, life, and lifelink like a Traxa does. But I'm going to read the text to you, and something's going to stand out to you at home if you haven't heard about this card yet. When a Traxa enters the battlefield, reveal the top 10 cards of your library. For each card type, you may put one card of the type in your hand. Put the rest in the bottom of your library in any order. So, like, it kind of has the, the uh, what do you call it? What's that creature in, oh, God, it's blanked on a Tom dragon Wolf? that does this. No, 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 the dragon that. Oh, Niv-Mizzet. Yeah, it's kind of like the Niv-Mizzet thing, but it has a reminder text. And I want to read this to you. The card types are artifact, battle, creature, enchantment, instant land, planeswalker, sorcery. So, they don't mention tribal, 
but they mention something that we haven't seen yet, which is battle. We're not going to try to, you know, figure out what it is. I'm sure it's going to be coming up in some set, probably something to do with like some kind of sub game uh, that's going to happen on the battlefield. But it looks like we're getting a new card type, Ross. Yeah, uh, and you know, if you remember when Tarmogoyf was previewed during Future Sight, that's when we found out that Planeswalker and Tribal were were coming. Uh, because Lorwyn was, was released the next fall. So, uh, s- sort of similar idea happening here where it's getting, uh, shown. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure there'll be a, a bunch of speculation. Um, you know, I was tickled by the, the obvious joke via a Simpsons reference. There's a, a scene in The Simpsons where, uh, Superintendent Chalmers is doing a review of, of the elementary school and, Skinner is obviously, you know, Principal Skinner is doing his best to try to push Chalmers towards only talking with with the brightest students to get a, a skewed uh, idea of what's going on. And so Chalmers is going to just, you know, quiz the students in, her, in a classroom. And Skinner's like, how about we pick this one? And points to Lisa and he's like, and he goes to talk to to someone else. He's like, no, no, I, I to, it was to Ralph. And Skinner was like, no, no, I, I pointed to Lisa. And he asks, when was the Battle of New Orleans? And she explains all, everything about the Battle of New Orleans. And then Ralph behind her just goes, what's a battle? <laughs> just uh, just Ralph saying, what's a battle? What's a battle? Yeah, yeah so, we're going to have to find out. So that, that is now um, the magic community for the next yeah. you know three months. Lo- love it. What's a, what's a battle? Speaking of battles, something that you use a lot in battle. Do you like the segue, by the way? Something that you use a lot in battle are swords. And we're getting a new sword in this set. <laughs> It's Sword of Forge and Frontier. And this one's an interesting one. It costs three, costs two to equip, just like all the ones prior. This is the red-green one. So a crypt creature gets plus two, plus two, and has protection from red and green. Whenever a creature deals combat damage to a player, expel the top two cards of your library. You may play those cards uh, this turn, and you may play additional land this turn. This one's interesting. Um, it does have some card advantage to it, and you get to play extra land, so that's cool. Unless, like, the, the pro red, and green really matters in standard, I'm not sure about this one. I, I kind of like this one. I think it, it's pretty easy to, to get significant advantage once you, you know, uh, equip with it or, or once you connect with it. Um, I do, I, it, with basically all the swords, the, the colors of protection have, have been quite relevant. Uh, so that's, that's still going to be the case here. But as long as those colors are relevant, like, the... One of the one of the things that immediately attracted me to sort of feast and famine uh, is the untapped lands ability negates one of the big issues that equipment have in that they're clunky and cost a very significant mana investment, and so you you need to get paid off pretty well for that. Being able to dig for more lands and play extra lands lets you kind of recoup the mana investment relatively quickly. Uh, you know, you might be able to play another one mana spell immediately after connecting with the sword, uh, which would be great. And then the next turn, you're going to have, you know, maybe six or seven or eight, even eight lands of play as you connect again. So you're, you're probably going to be able to double spell. Um, and that may, you know, really put you very far ahead. There's still the issue of like needing to connect with it. Um, you know, so that, that we haven't, you know, solved that because that's largely an unsolvable problem, but, I think there's a, a very strong payoff that helps the risk reward equation uh, for this particular sword. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely can see that. Were there any artifacts that uh, caught your eye down in this section? 
Um, Mirren's safe house is kind of cool. Okay, so that one's cost three. It's an artifact. As long as Mirren's safe house is on the battlefield, it has all activated abilities of all land cards and all graveyards. Yeah, so, so it can. This could potentially let you, uh, you know, Karn for another Nykthos. If you have a Nykthos in your graveyard, uh, you know, it could become a creature land if they kill the first one. Um, it obviously like just, you know, taps for mana of different, you know, basic lands or whatever you have in your graveyard. So as long as you can get lands into your graveyard, uh, it's sort of like a mana lith with significant upside. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that is interesting to me. Uh, but it is going to require having a lot of different lands in play and, or in a lot of different lands in your deck so you can get them into your sure. graveyard. Um, and, uh, I'm not sure if we have enough like good lands and standard for it. And I don't think the card itself is is quite powerful enough for older formats. So maybe this is like a wait until standard is really big and we have as many possible utility lands as we can get. But uh, it's a very cool card that does, you know, again, like unique things. So that's always what I'm on the lookout for. Well, speaking of lands, let's go ahead and move into the lands of this, of this set because there's some cool ones. The first one to talk about is what you'd expect. There is a creature land from this set. It's Mirex. It's a land. It's a sphere, which matters. Like there are cards that say, like you know, spheres do stuff. You can tap it to add a colorless. You can tap it to add one man of any color, but you can only activate it Mirex into the battlefield this turn. That's kind of weird, but okay. And then it's got three. Tap it. Create a one-one colorless Phyrexian might artifact creature token with toxic one, and this creature can't block. This this card's not bad. I mean, it's after colorless, whatever. You know, the turn you play it, you can kind of fix your mana if you're in a, if you're in a bind. But being able to make one ones as the game goes on, if there's a like a two color control deck in this format, they might play one or two of this card. Yeah, we we haven't really seen this kind of effect at that low of a mana cost. You know, Castle Ardenvale like was yeah. quite good and, and is four tap to activate at, at three tap. You know, again, you're, you're very much lowering the bar. So I I agree. This card is kind of interesting, um, you know, especially if you have other toxic creatures and you like only need to get in a few times to finish them off. If you have ways to pl- to proliferate, um, uh, I could see this card. You know, like you said, being a win condition in control decks. I could see it being in more proactive decks as a way to fight control decks. Uh, yeah. Can c- kind of do either or. So um, it it's. Yeah, it, it's it still comes down to how strong those you know one one uh, tokens are, and again, they're artifacts. So you know, maybe maybe we've just got this like full on artifact sacrifice thing going on, and we just need to feed it with uh, this and the the white enchantment. Sure, that's actually a really good point. I didn't think about the fact that it just it's a land that is going to leave bodies behind for for you to do stuff with. Um, there's some other lands that do some utility stuff here. Some of them are kind of cool. They usually kind of gotta, gotta go through hoops. Um, the Microsynth Gardens uh, taps for a colorless. You can pay one and add one man of any color to your mana pool. But also, it's got this ability X tap it. Uh, it becomes a copy of target non token artifact you control with mana value X. So, like, maybe you can do some cool stuff with that. But, like, all of these seem like some good filler and stuff. And then there is a cycle of lands in this set. I'm just gonna read one of them. I'm gonna read the white one. So, it's a land that enters the battlefield tapped. It uh, taps to add white, and then you can pay one and a white, tap it, sacrifice it, and draw a card. So there's a cycle of those for all the colors. It's going to be pretty good for limited. I don't think this is going to make any kind of thing constructed, but kind of burying the lead a little bit here. Uh, it's a sphere as well, for the stuff that kind of spheres. Because 
there is another cycle in this set, and it's a land cycle, and that you and I are super happy about. They're finally reprinting the original Fastlands, which means they are now legal in Pioneer, and this is huge for that format. So Dark Slick Shores, Seacrum Coast, Copperland Gorge, Blackleaf Cliffs, Razor Verge, Thicket. These are all going to be legal in Pioneer. The one that immediately obviously jumps out, or the ones that jump out the most to me, are obviously Blackleaf Cliffs in the red-black mid-range deck. And then if you're still playing the green-red aggressive deck, Copperline Gorge is a very big upgrade in the deck, because that was one of the things that I felt holding the deck back, is like, it was so hard to make sure you could cast Landmore Elves on turn one in your deck, because you just didn't have enough good red-green duels that came into play untapped. Yeah, you, you can now effectively play, you know, between Shocklands, Pathways, Fastlands, and Painlands, we have 16, or four, you know, four times four, uh, different dual lands that can produce either color on turn one. And that makes two color aggressive decks, their mana base, pretty easy. Yeah, this uh, opens up a lot of stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, the, I agree that the Gruel Boats deck as weak mana, Razor Edge Thicket will certainly help out the Selesnia uh, Auras deck. Um, and hopefully we continue to see, you know, a, a widening of the aggressive spectrum in Pioneer beyond the monocolor decks that we saw for years, whether it was, you know, mono black aggro into different mono red variants, and now there's mono white humans. You know, the, those have always been the default aggro decks, I think, in no small part due to the, the lack of quality of mana that aggressive decks have had. And now we finally have, you know, sort of equal mana across friendly and allied color pairs. It only took us, you know, three and a half years. Yeah, I mean... I feel like this was a long time coming. They just needed the right set for this. It looks like they probably had this in mind for a while, but it's it's nice that we finally have it, right? And I think this is going to open up, like you said, two color aggressive decks. Uh, sea Chrome Coast might open up, you know, blue white uh, soldiers being possible in Pioneer. Definitely going to help it out in Standard. I'll tell you that. Now yeah. you get this plus the the actual Soldier Land, like the mana in that deck it looks pretty good actually. For sure. and, and for a deck that you really need to have white blue on turn two, because some of your best plays involve you know blue white cards and stuff like that. So this is pretty cool. I'm I'm excited about this. I think it's one of the best and coolest parts of this entire set. And I'm really really looking forward to having these not only available in standard but available in pioneer. I think that's just absolutely huge. Um, De- definitely ahead. the most obvious you know high impact yeah. cards in the set. And um, I, I'm I'm less excited at this point. I'm more just relieved. We could finally sure. stop ranting. Sure. Like you know, it felt yeah. like every fourth show or so, it would we, come up we had to bring that up, yeah. and that yeah. now we can finally stop. Now they're like, "All right, here's a here's your bone. We finally threw it." To you. <laughs> All right, I think that's gonna be it for the the preview section uh, this week. We do have some more to go over. Um, we can go over more maybe next week. Talk about decks that are in. Uh, someone tagged us in the Discord. Um, talking about like the modern format. I don't think we have time to do that this week, you know, because they had a big uh, event on Europe. We can maybe get to that next week and stuff. Also, the format's about to change and stuff as well. But we did have a question in the mailbag submission, and this is from uh, Robin Christ. He says, "Are Horizon Lands too good for a standard set?" My initial reaction is just yes. I don't, I don't know what your initial reaction is. Yeah, they're really, really good. Yeah, like the the, the problem is, like any deck you put them in just has a severe advantage over its opponent. Like, think about if there's an aggro deck that just gets to play four of them. They don't care about their life total, and then they're just not going to run out of gas. Like, ever. You know, it's just going to be like, oh, I just got four lands that cycle in to do something else. And then they're going to play the off-color land, too. Like, if you just put the full cycle of them in, or whatever. So, my answer is just yes. I think they're way too good for a standard set. 
Yeah. I mean, uh, I agree. You you have to because you can't like privilege one color combination with them. Right. Uh, and so you have to print a bunch of them, and then you just give aggro decks like a ton of uh, you know sort of flood insurance that uh, other decks just don't get to use as effectively. Yeah. All right. You can't just. That's what I was about to say too. Is like any deck that has them just has such a big advantage. All right. Uh, let's do a couple over uh, over and underrated, then we can get out of here. Um, let me find one. <laughs> Mikey H says Paul Pierce's career. Um, underrated. Like he was really, really good. And you know, you could have argued that he was the best player on the Celtics teams that you know won in 08 and probably should have won again in 09. But KG but got you know got injured uh, and almost won again in 2010. So. Uh, he was a guy who has like 25,000 career points on, you know, very good efficiency. We're, we're sort of a, a little blinded these days um, because, you know, efficiency across the board and scoring has gone up so much in the last 10 years that it's hard to compare the current era to like 2005, you know, Paul, Paul Pierce's heyday straight up. You really have to look at their, you know, numbers relative to the rest of the league at that time. And sure. Paul Pierce compares very 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 yeah. well <laughs> yeah, for sure he was he, really good he also has like what might be my favorite story in the history of the nba which he's he's since walked back yeah. but if anybody remembers this when he was in the playoffs I think it was like 2008 or 2006 or something like that he has this injury and they had to like carry him off the court put him in like a wheelchair and they wheel him off the court and then he just comes back a few minutes later like running and he's completely fine and the, the crowd goes wild he like comes back in and plays thing apparently he shit himself yeah <laughs> and like just couldn't get you know like he can't stand up or whatever so like you know he's down on the court and they're like what's up and he's like guys i pooped myself like somebody somebody help me out here i need to like you you know what I'm i need to get taken off the court without you know shit falling out of my shorts yeah <laughs> or whatever so um some yep. people try to walk that back but i believe it happened i, yeah. I firmly believe it oh yeah everyone does he, yeah. he also has one of my favorite nicknames in the history of the nba what's, what's that he's the truth Oh, that is a good one. The truth, yeah, yeah, for sure. It's a good name. All right, that's a that's a good one. Um, uh, Brent Wagner says writing your deck list, printing your deck list. I think printing your deck list is underrated. Writing your deck list, I find it like cathartic, but I'm not most people, so that one's probably slightly overrated. Yeah, pr- printing your deck list is uh is an underrated. Although at this point oh, we yeah. have digital deck list submission sure. in most tournaments, so I it's gonna be a lost art soon. Yeah, I'm I'm at the I'm overriding deck lists at this point. I've done it enough. Sure, Cathal uh, says holiday themed cards. Uh, I think they're slightly overrated because we've seen them for a while. But I, uh, I was gonna say I'm about to show Ross here. I have a holiday themed card. Uh, the second one I've gotten from Flesh and Blood, and uh, can you see it? I don't know if it's focusing correctly. Uh, I can't really. Oh, okay, so, so, the, so the name of the card is called Shitty Xmas Present. Let's literally, they just wrote the word shitty on the name of a card. And then the flavor text says socks again. So this is extremely underrated because not only do they send me this card, Ross, but I'm going to show you this. They did they send you some socks? They sent me some actual socks nice. that, have, that have flesh and blood art on them. So that, that's huh. that's a company that gets it. Yeah. Well, Also with a handwritten note, which is like goes further than all the other stuff, obviously. That's just... You know, the the owner of the company that made the game is just like, thank you for what you do. You're great. You know, that's paraphrasing because I am great and should be thanked for it. My opinion know. is that holiday cards for from Watsy are incredibly overrated and they will continue to be so until I receive one, at which point they immediately become underrated. Mm-hmm. Sure. 
That makes sense. Uh, put like one or two more of these. Uh, someone says something like they're they're going off here, but I'm just gonna go ahead and ask. Spicy chicken sandwiches. You can you can answer this still. Uh, I mean, hot chicken is uh is great. I've had hot it's chicken probably, before. It's, it's underrated. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm in on spicy chicken sandwiches. Spicy chicken nuggets. Underrated. Uh, for me, they're properly rated just because I don't like spicy food. But I will say this: give me a chicken sandwich from Popeyes anytime, and I'm I'm happy. They're yeah, they're definitely the the best fast food chicken sandwich. All right, I gotta I gotta I gotta put this one here for you. Uh, Chase says ten plus year deals for baseball players. Um, very overrated. <laughs> I I it's weird to me that baseball still does things like this. Like the the NBA has moved away from long deals years ago because. Like teams didn't like it, and players didn't like it. Like, sure. they like players wanted to have more flexibility. Obviously, with baseball, you're just getting so much money that locking it in, I, th- I think, makes like, more sense. Yeah. Um, but it's it, they're like the only. I guess I think hockey actually still has a lot of long deals that they yeah, sign. They, they do huge deals. They do like lifetime deals, pretty much. Yeah, fifteen years. I don't know. Hockey is just complete so, nonsense, I guess. But it, it that always was weird to me that they they sign these gigantic deals in, in, in baseball and it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So I'm obviously going to talk about this one for a little bit. Um, I agree with you in overall that they're overrated because if you look at all of the huge deals in the history of the game, almost none of them have been good overall. Like <coughs> almost none Albert Pools. Yeah. Almost none <laughs> of them have worked out for both teams, etc. Uh, you saw them move away from this for a very long time. And rightfully so, you know, you'd see it randomly for like, obviously when, you know, a superstar, gets up to the majors really fast and becomes a free agent early in their career. You know, like you look at people like Carlos Correa or like, you know, uh, any of these other, like Bryce Harper who become free agents in their like late twenties and signing them a 10 year deal. Like you're getting the majority of their like best years of their career. The reason you're seeing kind of a, a, a move back to it is the way that the quote unquote salary cap works in baseball. So there's no salary cap in baseball. The way that it works is when you're over a certain number, it's kind of like you being taxed by America. When you're over a certain number, uh, whenever you go over that number until you reach the next number, you're, you're taxed at a certain percentage. So every dollar spent in between those two numbers is taxed at like 20%. And then, then if you, every dollar spent over that until the next number is taxed at like 40 and then 60 and then 80. You, I'm simplifying this, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Right? So, you know, it builds, right? So Just like the U.S. income tax system. Yeah. So the way this works is, just so you can't, uh, like, get the system or work around this, you, know, you, you saw this in the past where teams would like front or backload contracts. So they sign you like, let's say they sign you a 10-year, uh, $200 million deal. But in the first couple of years, you're only getting paid like, you know, 5 or $10 million a year. While later in the deal, you're making like $25 million a year, right? Where money's worth less. So it alleviates the pressure a little bit on the organization. Whatever. The way that your salary cap stuff works now uh, is it doesn't matter when the money's paid out. You could literally give them every dollar but one up front on the deal, and they don't technically make another dollar. It is averaged out per year. So if you sign a 10-year deal for $300 million, you count $30 million against that number every year that you're under contract, even if in the first years you're only making 10, and in the last years you're making 50. So what you're seeing now is teams to get around that, because there's always ways to game the system, is what they're doing is players will, like, let's say you want to come in there and you're like, they're talking years and money. Teams will tack on an extra year or two or three, depending on some of these things, where you get less average salary per year, but you're getting technically more money total 
but it actually can like save them money in the long run. So there's always ways to game the system. There's always ways to get around it. So that's why you're seeing people get 10, 11, 12 year deals that you, you're like, wait, what? How do they get this long of a deal? You know, like Xander Bogart's getting, what was it, a 12 year deal or whatever with San Diego, like blew my mind. I didn't think, that, like, I didn't even think he was going to get like an eight year deal. I thought he might, you know, some team was going to overpay for him. 12 blew my mind, but then it made sense. He got way less average animal salary to take more years. So it just helped them out and getting them better right away. So that's why you're going to see it. And with that really long-winded explanation and a bunch of math, I think that's going to be it for this week's episode. Uh, we'll try to get you one out as soon as possible next week, which is probably actually when you're going to hear it, because again, this is Friday the 20th. But everybody, thanks for listening. Ross, had a fun fun week this week doing all the preview cards. Yeah, good to be back talking about some magic, yeah, looking right. at what cards are coming out. I'm, my guess is we will have the entire set next week. Um, so we should be able to talk about anything that we missed in this, and then the, then the show after that, we'll do our top eights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we maybe bring the top eights back finally. Yeah. We haven't been able... We, our timing has been so bad on those lately, but for everybody, thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week. Yeah.